Next on Rugby Wrap-Up, Alexander the Great Corvicero, Stephen the Lizard Lewis, and Matt McCarthy on the Autumn Internationals. Rugby Wrap-Up brought to you in part by The Pig and Whistle, the world's best rugby pub. The Murphy Kennedy Group, founded with the idea that construction can be done better. And Lean and Limber, stretching your way to a healthier lifestyle. Everybody and welcome back to Rugby Wrap-Up. Thank you for joining us once again. We have a pretty good show for you today. We have Mr. Stephen Lewis once again calling in from the Upper West Side. You can see he is wearing his Rugby United New York jumper, hoodie, sweatshirt. Uh, he is, of course, the general manager of Rugby United New York. He's also the Jamaica Sevens uh, rugby program coach director of rugby, whatever you want to call it, for the men's and women. And he uh, is the two-time reigning USA Rugby Coach of the Year. Thank you to the pandemic. And, of course, we have Mr. Alexander the Great Corbacero, NBC analyst after a stellar rugby career with England and in the Premiership. Alex, I want to welcome you back first off because I think you might have a little bit of news for people. What's going on? Thanks for having me. Uh, did mention the Giltini scrum coach on my resume, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you get, get by. Um, we already broke that news, so uh, I had very exciting news. I got my, my latest scan results and blood work done, and, and as of now, I am, I am what's certified as sort of cured or cancer-free, and we just got to monitor, but where, where the cancer is spread has been deemed to have shrunk into normal ranges. So best-case scenario, we got through the chemo and got good news now, and just my immune system's getting back to normal ranges as well. So we're on the road to recovery and uh, really happy to be here. And, and, and thanks for the opportunity to share that. Wow, that is, that is great news. And we were talking off camera a little bit. I was, I was worried I've got this, this two things about being Irish. You, you, you have this impending guilt all the time and then you also worry. And Stephen, uh, you've been a busy little bee, right? Buzzing around the, the, the tri-state area with Rooney, giving clinics and stuff. Yeah, just, you know, it's been a tough time. It's just trying to keep the game alive. So it made ourselves available to any um, high school program or anybody really, uh, just to anyone who wants to throw a ball around. So, you know, went down to Old Blue, had uh, a touch contest against White Plains last week. And there's actually a Met New York Collegiate Select playing at one o'clock uh, this Saturday at Pelham against White Plains. So any rugby right now is a good thing. We're just trying to keep the thing, keep the thing ticking over. Interesting. All right. You mentioned White Plains, uh, and there was a gentleman named Pat Quinn. For those of you that didn't know this, and I want to talk about this real quickly, we lost Pat Quinn, and we also lost Christophe Dominici, uh, the French star, this week. Pat, of course, was the co-founder of the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. He uh, was diagnosed with ALS when he was 30, and he was 37 when he passed away this week, but he put some fight in, and he brought this thing uh, a great deal of attention. And of course, Christophe, who epitomized French flair, uh, French, French rugby flair passed away this week. And, uh, you know, we, we, our thoughts go out to the families, of course. Yeah, obviously, um, can't agree more with you there. And, and Pat Quinn obviously was, was very much a fixture at uh, Iona College, you know, good friend of Bruce McLean's and, uh, and well-known in these parts. Yeah, just a courageous guy. And Alex, did you ever meet Christoph? 
I have met him briefly. I didn't get to play against him, but I have met him a long time ago in Paris at an England-France game. And he's just, just an absolute legend. And it, it's so sad to see his passing. And, you know, my thoughts go out to his family. And you know, what an incredible player. And, and it's just sad, sad to, you know, that he's left us way too soon. Yeah, the tributes are flowing in. You've got Johnny Wilkinson, Dan Carter, just about everybody in the rugby community, a, a tough loss. But again, our thoughts go out to those families. And also, um, USA Rugby legend, three-time World, World Cup stud, Lou Stanfill, announced that he is battling Hodgkin's lymphoma. And no doubt that he'll beat that. But he got a very cool video pep talk from the Terminator, Arnold Schwarzenegger. How cool is that? Hey, Lou, I just found out uh, that you have cancer. Don't get discouraged. Remember, positive attitude is the most important thing. It's so cool. Uh, I saw that on Instagram. I, I was buzzing for him and, you know, him joking that he's already in remission after getting a pep talk from Arnold. And, you know, thoughts to Lou. Uh, I've, I can sympathize a lot with his position and, and he's, he's obviously going to have a hard road to travel, but he's a strong guy physically and mentally. He'll put him in great stead. He's got a family to fight for as well. And I uh, just wish him well and hear from him any way that he needs. And, and it's been amazing to see how the rugby community, like I felt a lot of support and love for them, have, have put their arms around him and supported him and his cause. And uh, I would advise people to check it out if you hasn't and uh, have a look at the link where you can help him and his family out as well. So a uh, big, big shout out to Lou. Yeah, that's, uh, you beat me to it. The link is on the screen there, folks. Please click it or check it out. And, uh, you know, I, I got to say this. If cancer couldn't have two tougher foes than you and Lou Stanfill, right? I mean, that's just... That's hell of a tag thing. team, you know? We, we main event WrestleMania and took the hell out of cancer at WrestleMania. Uh, no, but he, he, I, 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 honestly, I, it's, it's a tough road, but the, the mental side as well as the physical side is taxing. And I feel like, you know, rugby puts you in a great stead um, to, to, to give you the sort of the mindset and, and the strength as well to get through these challenges. All right, so now we can get to the autumn rugby. And we'd be remiss again if we didn't mention the women's game specifically that dramatic finish and victory for england versus france and you know steve you've got a, a long tenure coaching women's rugby west point jamaica sevens here in the states all kinds of setups 15s sevens george hook who is supposed to be on this show right now but is probably struggling with technology uh was coach of the irish women's national team and alex you are not only married to a usa rugby superstar but you were at the match, so maybe you can walk us through it. It was a great test match. Back-to-back uh, -back games, obviously. England had beaten France in uh, Grenoble the week before. This one was at Twickenham. And, you know, France absolutely brought it to England. I thought the intensity, the rugby they played, uh, the ability to move the ball out wide and, and stress England on the edges, keep it alive with offloads. If anything, they just missed some more of their opportunities. It looked like they built enough score. To, to win the game and get their first victory against England since 2018, first victory on English soil since 2015. But right at the depth of the game, I think with the 60-odd minutes, Simon, Simon Middleton unloaded eight of his, of his bench, all his whole bench at once. A lot of experience on that bench, players like Emily Scarrett, Marley Packer. They came on and they sort of shored the game for England and, and they won it with a, a kick at their last minute from Scarrett to, to win the game. And it was heartbreak for France, but it was really promising to see these two teams really have such a competitive game, especially as they were drawn in the same pool for the World Cup later this year in, in New Zealand. Steve, does your 
your mantra of ABE, anybody but England, apply to the women's matches, specifically when it's France versus England? Absolutely. Always the same. And just, just in this point of history in women's rugby, actually, there was another significant milestone this week, which was the first uh, women's referee in a senior South African game. I think Amy Barrett Terron is her name. She did the uh, Bulls Pumas, I think. So like Joy Neville. So we're starting to see uh, these milestones on an increasingly regular basis. And that's, that's a great thing. Yes, indeed. All right. Now we can go to the men. And why not start with Fiji losing to Italy 28 zip. And that's the second time in two weeks Fiji has lost 28 zip to a team. And why is that? Because they forfeited because of the COVID-19 because they had 29 players test positive. And in this competition, the uh, official scoring is four converted tries. That's 28 zip for the folks at home that don't know this. So that's Fiji, unfortunately, not being able to play in this, this tournament so far. Wales, 18, Georgia zip. Stephen, the Welsh looking to break what seemed to be a 20-match losing streak. It was actually six, and they did indeed get off the schneid for Wayne Pivak, but it was, as barons of all publications say, said, was a dour win. And since you're the closest thing that we have to a Welshman on the show today, why don't you step up and talk about this match? You're right. They snapped the losing streak um, in particularly unconvincing fashion, as you suggested. Um, what's probably more important is what, are, what is up next for them, which is a dominant uh, England coming in their direction this weekend. Um, something that might play in their favor, though, is they're actually playing at Park Escarlets at Clenechley, which is a club ground, smaller ground, uh, open, so no roof, no nothing. So if weather's bad, that could be something positive for Wales. But right now, it's very hard to see them. I don't think they've built enough confidence to, to stop this English juggernaut, which is what we're seeing right now. Alex, in the world of hypotheticals, you're now the head coach of Wales. What are your three immediate moves ahead of this match against England next week and going forward? I think a big area that Wales need to improve on is the physicality. I think they've gone away from that a little bit under Gatlin that, you know, they used to pride themselves on, on that. And I think, you know, that, that front five has, has got to offer a bit more around the park for me. I think we need, they need more dominant carries and they need more bigger hits. If you look at the output that England are producing in that area, it's kind of like a gold standard. So I think, you know, there's a lot of work rate in that, but I think some of the more dominant collisions need to come up from that front five. Uh, similar, I think they need a, they need one out-and-out out ball carrier in that back row. Um, I, I think, you know, they've got the sort of breakdown sort of threats in and around, but I do think they, they're a little lacking of go forward. I don't know if Moriarty's fit or not, but someone with just sort of a route one direct physical, you know, presence on the field I think is needed. And then with that, if you can go out and getting some consistent quick ball, I think so, playing Sheedy at 10 and trying to play sort of, having more of an attacking identity. I don't really know exactly how Wales want to attack. I think if you play bigger to playing Sheedy, you have a lot of difference in the style of play. Um, so for me, it would be trying to get on the front foot and, and Pivac going back to what he did well at the Scarlets, you know, playing flat to the line, playing quick ball and actually, you know, upping the tempo in the attack. I think the error count's been too high. Um, I think they've been a bit predictable. And uh, I just don't, and I just, the other thing is their set piece hasn't been consistent enough against the good teams to allow them a proper platform to play. I think the, the biggest contrast is the two halves against Ireland and Wales. In the, the first half, lost the collision, set-piece malfunctioned, blown away. Second half, actually started the front up, got on the front foot, played a bit more rugby, didn't, didn't 
like weren't accurate enough to get the win, but actually showed more of what they can do. So that second half performance against Arda is what I'd be looking to try and replicate and, and the areas that I just touched on. Interesting, another little subtext to this game, England-Wales, is that England coming as usual, mind games, except this time it isn't Eddie Jones. Uh, John Mitchell's in the press today. Yes. Ex-Eagles and All Blacks coach, good friend of ours, stirring the pot a little bit, saying that, um, that perhaps Wales might target Wales might target a couple of individual players and uh, a little bit naughty, but you know, that's what gets players fired up, it's what sells newspapers. The game needs a bit of colour, it needs a bit of controversy. I'm all for it. Oh, controversy. Oh, instead of controversy for the American audience. I like that. Keep it real, Steve. All right, guys, we got to take a quick break, but we'll come back and we'll talk about Scotland versus France, Ireland versus England, and Argentina versus Australia, and our previews for next week after this. I've been blind since I was four, and I've never seen a beer commercial or a beer label. None of that stuff influences me. I drink beer because of the taste, and my beer is Pabst Blue Ribbon. It has the taste and the flavor. What do you think's on the label? I think there's a, a naked woman riding on a unicorn, jumping over fire. Oh, that's good beer. City and want to watch some great rugby, have some great food, and some great times, go to the world's best rugby pub, The Pig and Whistle on West 36th Street. And we are back. Scotland are the New York Mets of international test rugby. Every single time they're on the cusp of a franchise-changing win, they come up with an epic, unbelievable gaffe that just leaves everybody going home and curling up. Stuart Hogg, not finding touch. What? Come on, man. Well, you're, you're being somewhat hyperbolic as usual and exaggerating. Um, first of all, it's not a World Cup final. It's a friendly in the autumn. Secondly, it was a pretty evenly contested game. Scotland had not one, not two, but three chances in the last five minutes. But they, their line-out failed to execute on two occasions. And then, as you mentioned... Stuart Hogg was a little, um, I'd much rather have a player like that who, who shows up, who fronts up, and who goes for the distance. That was a long kick. To get 20 yards away from the line wouldn't have helped him. He had to thread the needle. He's done it many times. On this occasion, he didn't. But one mistake, you know, like one, one swallow does not make a summer. One mistake does not make this guy a bad player. So keep it in perspective. It's a tough one because obviously there's going to be frustration, especially from a forwards point of view, like the hard work's been done, get down there. And, you know, you're thinking next job, the platform, to try and give them to win the game. But at the same time, if it's, it's Stuart Hogg. You know, I, I take him on the field for Scotland uh, every day of the week. For me, he's the Lions fullback. Uh, he's a fantastic player. And um, it, obviously a huge error. And you could compare it maybe to, you know, him dropping that ball over the line. I believe it, it, earlier in the Six Nations, like he's not perfect, but, I, but I, it's not an intentional error. He has an absolute cannon on that left foot usually as well, and, and he was trying to get in the distance to win the game. But I, I think knowing Hoggy as well and playing with him, he'll beat himself up 
over that more than I think anyone else will. And, and he'll look to try and improve that going forward. And he'll be the first one to take it on the chin for the boys. But it's, it's a tough pill to swallow because it was really the shot to, to get back into the game for them and, and they blew it. But, but on a whole, they're playing a very good French team as well. Steven, your hypocrisy, like Doc Holliday's in Tombstone, knows no bounds. You, you were all over kickers professionally for not making even the most difficult of conversion kicks. And here you are giving this guy a pass on this one. I'm just, I, I, I'm apoplectic. I'm giving you a pass on your choice of tie, so. Oh, really? Because, uh, Alex, the last two shows, I wore my Team Corb shirt and got vilified by Stadler and Waldorf in the, in the form of Lewis and, and uh, Hook telling no. me that I wasn't dressed well enough. It wasn't the so team. I have my Golden Eagles tie on, saluting Lou Stanfield today, and I was waiting for you to say something. It wasn't a Team Corp shirt. It was the dodgy jacket. That, oh. to me, is red, white, and blue, which that, to me, is also Glasgow Rangers. So let's leave it there. Oh, because everybody's thinking of them right now on this show. <laughs> wow, Alex, you see what we got to deal with while you're gone? I mean, it's Ireland at Twickenham, 18-7. And this one was just... This was a tough one to watch if you're an Ireland fan. Let me just go over the stats here real fast. The halftime stats, for instance. Ireland had the ball 57% of the time to England's 43% of the time. Ireland won five of seven scrums. Meters gained saw Ireland with 392 on 66 carries. That's 392 meters on 66 carries to England's 34 carries for 220 meters. And tackles subsequently... England had 119 in the first half to Ireland's 39. Ireland, though, lost three of their lineouts and were awful on the other ones, and they paid dearly for that. And despite these, these stats, England was on top 12-zip going into the shed at halftime. So it was mind-numbing. And then after 80 minutes, 246 tackles by England, 246 that's like a Team USA playing against the All Blacks at Soldier Field. It's like a Tier 1 nation versus a Tier 2 nation, as the broadcasters pointed out. And you got Mako Vunipola with 16 tackles, and he had the least amount of the front eight. And yet, Ireland comes away without a win. Alex? I don't think the stat – I think England were absolutely fine in that game to let Ireland have the ball. And I, and I think it was purely the physicality of England is still the, the X factor for them, that which is the separation between them and Ireland for me. I think Ireland can't, can't handle England and, and win those front, front foot collisions. I think the set piece at the scrum, the mall, the line out, and especially in that first half, uh, England disrupted Ireland. And that's really where they got the penalties that got them the in – for their first try that came from that cross field, but the, they, they bludgeoned them with the, with the scrum penalty, then the mall and the power game. And when they had the advantage, Johnny May got the cross field. Um, I thought, you know, Ireland started the game trying to play around England with a lot more of, you know, kicks to contest. And I really think that was probably their best way into the game was they were getting good reward in those and it was giving them unstructured, uh, you know, defense, like, like, transition attack to get to attack against because once that England line got set it, it was men v boys uh, England were too 
we're getting off the line. Uh, it was actually a thing of beauty to be pitch shy because there's no crowds and hear the talk, the collisions, and just the intensity that England brought. Um, it was too much for Ireland. And, and in a game where you look at, I think England's biggest faux pas was their penalty count. It was outrageous, especially in that second half. It was almost like a defensive drill uh, for the last 20, 30 minutes where they would defend 20-odd phases, not even really feel like they looked like they need to give a penalty away, but stupid and disciplined penalty. Then there'd be another line-out attack into their 22. And I think it was England's uh, breakdown work, which I knew they were going to be good at the breakdown, but I thought with, um, with Doris, with Omani, with Stander, with, with some of the players they had, I thought it would be quite competitive at the breakdown. But England oh, man, had so many... Yeah, Armani, England had so many key turnovers at, at key points of the game where you thought they might be under pressure and they came up with a big turnover. And, um, and then just the clinicalness in that first half, the score, um, that, that Johnny May try off one line-out error and it shows how they can pun punish you. It was kind of all-black-esque sometimes. Sometimes the all-blacks don't have the ball for a large part of the game and then they get it and they score like that. And I thought England showed passions at a time. But I think against a, a better team, say like France or even Wales at times, they, they don't want to be giving those middle-of-the-field penalties away as much to then give teams entries to their 22? Yeah, yeah, well, first, to go back to your original rant about the statistics, I think slightly misinterpreted. The key statistics was the England tackle count, right? And that was just a formidable defensive effort. They were more successful letting Ireland play with the ball. So, consequently, you get players like Gibson Park and you get later in the game, chasing the game, getting more desperate, not sticking to patterns, having to take chances, and those chances not working out. England was suffocating. That was a formidable defensive performance that they are looking pretty damn good right now. And coming from me, you know that's a compliment. England are building up ahead of steam, right? And uh, the English press will always start that into a snowball. But it's all about timing. You know, it's, it's like they had that wonderful semi-final against New Zealand, didn't quite crack it. They're a good team now, but if, if, if your goal is World Cup wins, which is still three years away, then I'm not saying are they peaking too soon or some of these guys going to have to be replaced. Yes. Yeah. In yeah. the next 18 months, they, they look like they're going to be the dominant force. Gentlemen, quick true or false question for you. If not for Jacob Stockdale's garbage time try, it would have been two consecutive shutouts for England. Have they had two consecutive shutouts since 1962? True or false? Alex. True. Steven. I'll go false. No clue. Oh, again, Alex Corbisero, the pro's pro. Ding, ding, ding. He wins that one. All right. What, do I look English? Do I look English? I just guessed this one, mate. Oh, you didn't, Alex. You know it. You know the question. You, you know your stuff. I felt like it did, but I wasn't yeah. sure. I was like, surely it's got to be true that, but I didn't know. Let's move on to the Southern Hemisphere. Los Pumas clawed their way back to a tie with the Wallabies who blew a nine point lead with under 20 minutes remaining in Australia in Newcastle, I believe. And Sanchez and Hodge accounted for all the points. They each had five penalty goals and they each missed one. Wallabies had two tries disallowed and they were correct. They were, it was correct in disallowing them uh, for Australia. Dave Rennie, Dave Rennie was livid. Whereas Mario Ledesma who, could be the best coach in this tournament, uh, was relieved. I mean, he's got his team on the road. They, they were mentally gassed after beating New Zealand. And he lost his number nine the day before, Tom, uh, Tomas Scubelli, who's been playing well, uh, to injury. Uh, Alex, if you are Wallabies captain Michael Hooper, 
what is your message to the team specifically now that I think they're sitting out this weekend? I think it's the frustrations of their missed opportunities in their error counts. I, I think it's a similar theme that haunted them in some of those all black games where um, they left opportunities that they would create out there, um, extra passes, offloads, sometimes, you know, trying to go for that one to try. And I think Dave Rennie touched on it afterwards as well, that sometimes, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking a ruck or a tackle and playing one or two more phases to score. And I think that's sort of the, the um, balance that that team needs to strike is I think it, it, Argentina are, are, are throwing the kitchen sink at you in the, in the defensive outputs. And, you know, there's a strong argument to be saying there's a theme with top teams feeling more comfortable not having the ball than having the ball because of the, the breakdown rules and also uh, then being backing yourselves off the transition or turnover attack. But um, for me, I think it's the missed opportunities which will haunt them. I think the error count is too high for them. They're, they're creating and playing some exciting stuff, but the composure and the last little touches to, to sort of the small margins that you need at test football aren't, aren't quite there yet for them. And that theme is, has been creeping in now for a number of weeks. Back to the Australian point. I mean, he's bloody Rennie, right? Ex-Glasgow coach. And he didn't really like the Heather, uh, set the Heather alight when he was in Glasgow, but he's a, he's a great coach. He's, he's brought along, a, in, introduced a lot of young players to this Australian team. So the, the cook isn't... Um, the cake isn't quite baked yet as far as Australia go. So I wouldn't get too concerned about where they end up. I, th I think this is um, still a proving ground, this tournament for them. Uh, Argentina, emotional, um, abrasive. They've come out, they've, they've, they've fronted up. They play for that flag. They play for that jersey um, with no little skill. They, they've, they've had a great tournament already. Well, my concern for, for Argentina is, as you mentioned, they play with emotion. I mean, after that emotion goes away and how, how draining is playing with that kind of emotion, Alex, over the course of week in and week out. I know rugby is an emotional game and you have to have that part in you, but you also have to check it, you know, and that's, it's a fine line, I, isn't it? It's a fine line, but I think that Argentina team is fueled off passion, national pride, um, what they've been through to get to where they are. Um, will that get you a dimish, diminishing marginal return is a big question. You know, can you keep emotionally revving yourself up to those levels every week and keep that consistent? Pro you know, history will show us probably not. So at some point, there's going to be an inevitable dip. But the fact that they have come, like, and you can credit, you know, maybe they're not scoring a bunch of tries or whatever. They've come out of playing no rugby since the World Cup. And they've gone out there and, you know, they beat the All Blacks and drawn with, the Wallabies out of, you know, out of a cold start. I think that is with incredible. With some of their players on the road for four months. Uh, it, it, which is an incredible achievement. And so I'm hard to be hypercritical of them because the fact that they've been able to do that is unreal. And, and it, you know, shows an example to for someone like South Africa who pulled out because of fears of not being prepared enough and, yeah. and, the, and not having – and then you see a team that's gone through what they've gone through and gone out there and done that. As much as there's things I could critique about them, I, I, I want to just pat them on the back. And just to jump in on your first question about best nine and ten, the only, the only people I would argue are better is, is DuPont and Intermac at the moment for France. But other than that, I think they are clear contenders right up there. But I think those two for me are, a, are a sort of in, in their own little league of their own at the moment. That would be my choice. But, you know, and, we're, and look, we're, we're including – New Zealand in this mix, in this question, and England, and, you know. No, I agree. You know, it's amazing. And they're young, too, so that's a, that's a pretty cool thing. It's a good thing, it's a good thing for rugby in, in a global game. Okay, guys, Stephen's got to go, so we got to bang through our predictions. Scotland, Fiji. I predict Scotland wins 28-0.
Wales versus England. We don't, I think you guys would probably agree with me on that one. So world, Wales versus England. Stephen. England, 32-12. England, 22-10. I'm going to go with England, 30-12. to 12. Uh, Same plotting, you know, uncreative performance from Wales that we've seen so far. France versus Italy. Alex. 35-10 to, to France. Stephen. 42-6, France. Oh, I'm going to go with 35-6. Uh, to six. General Giuseppe Garibaldi will be conflicted as Adam Gilchrist was, is when the Gilgronis play the Giltinis, neither of which is an Italian crime family. Ireland versus Georgia. Stephen. Ireland, 22-3. Alex, you look like a Georgian prop, by the way, just, just for the record. Who, what, what is your take on this? And you could have played for Ireland, so you have an enormous stake in this one. Uh, Corbs Vili will pick. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to pick Ireland 30 points to six. I'm going to go with Ireland 28, Georgia three. We still have that last one, the big one in the Southern Hemisphere, the rematch, All Blacks versus Argentina. Stephen. All Blacks. 24-12. Alex, has the, has the romance worn off for Argentina as the luster? Is it, is it now back to reality? Yeah, 28-10 to the All Blacks. And I've they got, come out with a vengeance. I'm going with Argentina just to be the, the, the crazy yank. Argentina, 20. New Zealand, 17. On that note, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Stephen Lewis, calling up from the bougie Upper West Side, and Mr. Alex Corbicero calling in from the beautiful Greenwich, Connecticut of England in Surrey. I'm Matt McCarthy for Rugby Wrap-Up in Midtown Manhattan, signing off.